It was 8.45 on a bright, clear Monday morning. Conditions were excellent for flying, and there was enough fuel on board for a flight for about four hours. That's longer than you can normally drive a car on a single tank of gas. Flying alone takes concentration and attention. Not always the things we think of first when we're on long, solitary drives. In a car on a long drive, our minds can wander. We multitask. We drive 80 miles an hour and pass cars. We find our favorite music to play. We pop open a beverage and eat a snack and never once consider that we're hurling down the highway at catastrophic speeds. In fact, we sometimes drive for an hour or more and don't even recall or register the time or distance that we've traveled. You can't do this in a single-engine airplane and certainly not flying alone over deserts and mountains. You need 100% focus and attention. In a car, you may swerve outside your lane with no consequence. In a plane, that misjudgment may cause you to hit a mountainside, and that's probably going to end with a very different outcome. On this beautiful morning, the flying was sublime. The lowlands were quiet. The backdrop of the mountains was alluring. Why not take a little side trip for a closer look? The plane's running well. The visibility is beyond amazing, and the air temperature was not debilitatingly cold. The mountains in the region exceeded 13,000 feet. Pilots are well aware of density altitude and what that does to the lift and rate of climb for an airplane. Heat and humidity play a role in density altitude. In its simplest definition, density altitude is the altitude at which the plane feels it's flying. If you've been in a plane and know the feeling and the power of takeoff, but after, during the flight, you feel the plane coasting through the sky as if it's standing still, then you understand and know that feeling of the plane flying. On this particular day, everything seemed right, and in fact was going very well. But after six hours, the people waiting back at the airport began to worry. With only four hours of fuel and temperatures rising, a call was made to begin a search. The search would eventually employ 14 aircraft and cover more than 20,000 square miles. But on that first day of the disappearance, the search was halted quickly due to some high winds. During the next several days of the search, more than two dozen previously undiscovered and uncharted airplane crashes were found. But none of them were the plane the search parties had been looking for. Thirteen months after takeoff, the plane was found by hikers high in the mountains. The National Transportation Safety Board conducted an investigation and concluded that the plane had crashed into the side of a mountain at the 10,000-foot level, which was more than 300 feet below the pass that it had been trying to navigate. The investigation concluded that the crash was caused by, quote, the pilot's inadvertent encounter with downdrafts that exceeded the climb capability of the airplane, contributing to the crash where the downdrafts high-density altitude, and the mountainous terrain. To paraphrase, the plane couldn't climb fast enough to clear the mountains because of the downdrafts. In 2010, three years after the crash and two years after the discovery of the plane and the remains of the pilot, the pilot was inducted into the International Air and Space Hall of Fame at the San Diego Air and Space Museum. That pilot's name was Steve Fawcett. For some, that name will be familiar. For others, it will ring some distant memory bell. But most have no knowledge of who Steve Fawcett was. 
So my question is, does Maurice Wilson deserve to be in the International Aviation Hall of Fame? After all, he took on an almost impossible task in 1933 with very little flying experience. Steve Fawcett had crashed his single-engine super decathlon airplane into a mountain in 2007. He had over 40 hours of flight time in this plane, so this wasn't a case of unfamiliar equipment, and Fawcett had quite a bit of aviation experience. Steve Fawcett had set 91 aviation records, including being the first person to circumnavigate the world in both a hot air balloon and a single-engine fixed-wing aircraft. Aviation was only one of Steve Fawcett's interests. As a sailor, Fawcett held 23 sailing records and nine long-distance race records. With little cross-country skiing experience, he set cross-country skiing records in Colorado and competed in the World Loppet, which is a series of 10 cross-country ski marathons, and Fawcett was one of the few amateur athletes to have completed all 10 races in a year. Fawcett competed several times in the Iditarod Sled Dog Race, and although not good enough to make his high school swim team, Fawcett became the 247th person to swim the English Channel. He competed in Ironman triathlons, the Boston Marathon, and the Leadville Trail 100-mile trail run race. Are you tired of this guy yet? Is all this making you feel lazy, like an underachiever? Well, put your seatbelt on. This is not going to make you feel any better. Fawcett also raced sports cars and competed in the 1993 24 Hours of Le Mans, and in 1996, the Paris to Dakar Rally. And he wasn't done yet. Steve Fawcett was also an experienced and accomplished mountain climber. Fawcett climbed the highest peaks in six of the seven continents, declining only to climb Mount Everest because of his asthma. So, Steve Fawcett did have personal limitations that he acknowledged, but there weren't many. And there were reports that the last flight he took was to search for an area in the Nevada desert to attempt a run at the land speed record, which at the time, and continues to be 760 miles an hour. Fawcett was a member of the Royal Geographical Society and the Explorers Club, and numerous aviation organizations around the world. He was also a self-made and very successful businessman, with a net worth reported to be over $6 billion. Steve Fawcett was in his day the most famous aviator in the world. I would say Steve Fawcett was on the level of aviation adventures with... Amelia Earhart, Charles Lindbergh, Howard Hughes, and maybe we even want to throw Maurice Wilson into that mix. Steve Fawcett and Maurice Wilson seem to have a couple of things in common. Maurice was also a very successful businessman and had developed an insatiable appetite for adventure. Both went after things that interested them, and regardless of experience, they trained to give themselves a serious chance of success. Maurice took off in his biplane for Nepal, a 5,000-mile journey over oceans, mountains, and deserts. Steve Fawcett, with all his experience and cutting-edge equipment, crashed and died in the eastern Sierra Nevada mountains. What chance does Maurice Wilson have of making his goal if the greatest aviator of all time could crash and die during an afternoon pleasure flight not far from where he took off? My name is Jeff Vargin, and this is the High Adventure Podcast.
Hello and welcome to episode 6 of season 2 of the High Adventure Podcast. If you're new to this season, you might want to go back and catch up by listening to the previous episodes. If you're new to the High Adventure Podcast, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to season 1, where we drill down into the story of the 1977 Yosemite pot plane crash, where a plane carrying 6,000 pounds of smuggled marijuana crashed into a frozen lake in the Yosemite backcountry. If you've never heard that story, check it out. It's a wild one. It's always interesting to me who's out there listening to these stories. We've hit all 50 states, and being sort of a mountain adventure podcast, I would assume a higher listener base in the states that are more mountainous, because the people who live there tend to be involved in more outdoor activities. But we have a strong listener base in places like Florida and Oklahoma and Missouri and Alabama. So I wanted to reach out to those of you in those states where extreme mountain adventure is a little harder to find, and thank you for listening. Internationally, we have listeners at this point in 47 countries, and if percentages are your thing, that's 24% of the world's countries have people listening to the High Adventure podcast. That blows me away as I sit here in my little office and toil away alone on these stories. Some countries seem obvious. Outside the U.S., New Zealand has the largest number of listeners, and the top 10 probably wouldn't surprise anyone. But would you think we have listeners in Vietnam or the Cook Islands or a bunch of people listening in Papua New Guinea? And Morocco's in the top 10 of countries with listeners. If you get a chance, help us build our audience and leave a review for us on any of your podcast platforms. And please, please tell your friends and share this podcast on your social media sites. Let's see if we can send these stories out to all 195 countries in the world. As always, you can email me at thehighadventurepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at, at highadventurepodcast, on Facebook at thehighadventurepodcast, and on Instagram at High Adventure Podcast. As always, we post these episodes on YouTube and Vimeo, and those channels are under our company name of Accidental Productions. If you're trapped indoors and looking for something to watch, take a look at Assault on El Capitan, our film based on the second ascent of Wings of Steel, Yosemite's most controversial climb. It's out there on Amazon Prime and streaming sites everywhere. We've also just retooled and relaunched our website, accidentalproductions.net, Take a look and tell us what you think. If you've listened to previous episodes, I'm hoping that the dots of adventure and extreme athletes are starting to connect. From George Mallory to Maurice Wilson to Edmund Hillary and Steve Fawcett to my friend Anna Smith and to Reinhold Messner, who we'll talk about in a later episode. There are personality traits they have in common, but there also seems to be unknowable motivations that connect all these athletes. I think you can put Michael Jordan in that category as well. One observable thing they seem to share is the joy and energy they get from chasing a goal that to most on the surface seems unattainable at worst and extremely difficult at best. In our last episode, Maurice was cruising along and making progress. After some early mishaps, he seemed to have found his rhythm. The slowdown in Tunisia was a short one, and with his escape from authorities and fuel from a rusty container in his tanks, Maurice's faith was continuing to carry him safely or, or dangerously to his destination, depending on which side of the fence you're on. 
Your fuel had water in it. You were lucky to be alive, the mechanic in Gavis told Maurice before, draining the contaminated fuel from the Everest. The remaining flight over Africa was monotonous and fairly uneventful. Aside from the brazen sun that left Maurice's face blistered and weathered, he flew without incident into Cairo exactly a week after leaving London. He was right on schedule. Before leaving London, Maurice had applied for and was told he had received a permit to fly over Persia, or what, what is now called Iran. He was told the permit would be waiting for him in Cairo, and relaxed and ready for the next leg of his journey, he called the British legation to make arrangements to pick up that permit. The clerk who answered the phone was enthusiastic and said, Oh yes, Mr. Wilson, I think there's something here for you. But before Maurice could speak, the line went dead. A couple of seconds later, he was reconnected, but this time an obviously much older man was on the line, and he told Maurice, quote, I'm afraid there's no permit for you here, but if there's any way I can help, just let me know. The phone again went dead. Maurice spent the next 24 hours in Cairo being passed from one government department to the next. Maurice began to realize that his hubris and arrogance in London was coming back to haunt him. Remember his statement to the press after he was told not to fly to India? His statement was, stop me, they haven't got a chance. Well, it turns out the British Air Ministry might have a little longer reach than he'd anticipated. Maurice surmised that the Air Ministry, as well as a couple other government agencies, might be a bit embarrassed by his success so far. They told him he had lacked the skills and not to go. But here he was in Cairo and making good progress toward his goal. He presumed that the government would be even more humiliated if he'd safely landed in India, thereby proving that they were wrong in their assessment of his skill and, more importantly, of he himself. You can't help but wonder why the British government was actively trying to stop Maurice. Their official stance was that Maurice was endangering himself and that they would not be complicit in helping a man who, in their words, was committing unintended suicide. A more likely reason was the embarrassment the British government and the mountaineering community would face if this solo guy with no experience had made it to the summit of Everest. The British mountaineering establishment, with the help of the British government, had mounted several reconnaissance missions and expeditions to try to reach the summit. The enormous and expensive undertaking sent well-known and experienced climbers in large groups for months at a time to attempt Everest. With government support, the British sent recon and climbing expeditions in 1921, 22, 24, 33, 35, 36, 38, 1950, 1951, and the summit was finally reached by Edmund Hillary in 1953. Hillary was a New Zealander, but he was part of a British expedition. That's ten large-scale expeditions before the summit was finally reached, and all supported by the British government. How would it have looked if a solo guy from Bradford, who'd trained by fasting and walking, would have made it to the top of Everest? Once again, the hypocrisy of the government was evident. Maurice had been promoted quickly in his time in the military. He'd been wounded, and rightly so was recognized as a hero. But he also had some unconventional ideas about mountain travel, including putting your survival in your faith and in God. Was the government truly trying to protect Maurice? Or were they protecting themselves and the summit for one of their chosen climbers? 
When discussing George Mallory, it's clear he shared the same passion, ambition, and even obsession with Everest. But Mallory is part of the climbing establishment and deemed acceptable and worthy of standing on top of Everest. Maurice was an outsider who had not only no interest in joining an expedition, he had public disdain for their methods and their approach to climbing the mountain. It could be argued that Maurice Wilson was just far ahead of his time. Forty-five years later, serious climbers would attempt Everest more in the style of Maurice than they would in the assault and siege style of the large expeditions. But in history, Maurice has been all but forgotten, except for the odd article that shows up periodically with titles like Madman of Everest and Wing in a Prayer. Could and should Maurice be mentioned in the same conversation as the countless other climbers who tried and failed at Everest? Or should he remain a footnote and a punchline? His unconventional methods deserve study and scrutiny, but I think he should be recognized as one of the great adventurers of the 20th century and absolutely should be mentioned in the same conversation as Mallory. Maurice Wilson and George Mallory had a lot of personal traits in common. One thing that George and Maurice did not share was the use of both arms. While waiting for the permit to fly over Persia, Maurice took the opportunity to have his plane inspected and serviced. This would be the last chance to have the Everest maintained for several months. Maurice quickly realized that he was never going to receive the required permits to fly over Persia, so he made plans to fly in a different route. But this was not as easy as changing plans is today. Maurice had been flying by compass, maps, and geographical landmarks that he'd studied for months before taking off. He searched the city for new maps, but all he'd found was a tattered old school atlas. He was getting very good at navigation by compass, but the maps and unfamiliar geography were going to be a challenge. He decided to take off and let his faith carry him, which in his mind it always had. His new plan would take him from Cairo to the island of Bahrain, which at the time was a British protectorate. Currently, that's about a two-and-a-half-hour flight, but in 1933, it was 700 miles and at the absolute limit of the Everest's range. The route would take him over some of the most desolate country in the world. He'd be flying beyond the range of his maps and for the final 200 miles, over territory that he had no real specific geographical knowledge. This is where we get into that sweet spot of the adventure athletes. A less courageous person would turn around and be proud of their effort and humbly say that they'd given it their best shot, but it just didn't work out. But like many athletes we've discussed on this show, Maurice Wilson had an obstinate courage. Some would call it a rash stupidity or a lack of rational judgment, but this same courage, no matter how you qualify it, would become wildly evident on the slopes of Everest. In episode four, we talked about lassitude. Lassitude is a state of extreme mental and physical fatigue and weakness. This phenomenon occurs on Everest when climbers are navigating the troughs through the glacier. I've heard from some of you asking about these troughs and 
why they seem to be such a difficult thing to navigate and why the air seems to be so stagnant. Glaciers are not lakes of ice. They're giant masses of ice that, through gravity and erosion and the repeated thawing and refreezing, are some of the most inhospitable places that have ever existed. Is that hyperbole? Maybe. But until you've tried to navigate across or, more accurately, through a glacier, you're going to have to take my word for it. As glaciers descend down a slope, they're in a constant battle with themselves. They pick up rocks and debris as they move, and if they can't move the debris, they shear the weak parts off and move over and around the hardest and most unbreakable parts of the earth. It goes without saying that if a glacier can form at all, the overall environment must be awesomely cold. Add wind and storms to the mix, and you've got a large crumbling piece of windswept ice covered in snow. The unevenness of the movement and the changing external temperatures cause the ice to become distorted in shape. Walking on top of the glacier, you risk falling into a crevasse that's been hidden by layers of snow. And if you're traveling alone and fall into a crevasse, you're not getting out. Now imagine finding an opening along the side or at the base of the glacier that allows you to enter this frozen maze that winds its way through the glacier. Above you are walls of overhanging ice that rise over a hundred feet. On top are moraines of overhanging snow threatening to bury you at the slightest shift of the ice or from a blast of wind. As you're winding your way and searching for the correct path through this thing, it's seemingly living, and you're now inside this creature then climbing through one of these troughs that we've talked about. Deep inside the glacier, it's protected from the outside elements. The air is stagnant. Moving through these stagnant ice valleys for hours is what causes lassitude. Physical and cognitive abilities are impaired, and navigation can be difficult, and with no experience, really impossible. Moving through the troughs in a team offers some security. Routes can be scouted and mapped, and with teamwork and proper scouting paths can be marked and navigated without lost time for reconnaissance. Navigating these troughs alone means ending up in icy cul-de-sacs and having to retrace your steps to find another route that hopefully will not lead to yet another dead end. It would seem like walking into your own death through a living maze of ice while not being able to think or breathe. Maurice knew this feeling. It began as a few hours that grew to a few days. The blizzard ripped and thundered down the glacier. Maurice listened to the violence outside from his storm-ravaged tent that was perched at 20,500 feet. Twice during these days he thought the weather would clear, and twice he broke camp and tried to move forward, and twice after only a 100 yards, another blizzard forced him to stop, set up his weakened tent, and do his best to survive. It was April 21st, his birthday, the day he'd set for himself to stand on the summit. He was 8,500 feet from his goal when he wrote, April 21st, Saturday, 36 today, wished myself many happy returns, had hellish cold feet all night, 
Storm's still raging, so I'm finishing breakfast, and she'll try to get some sleep. Eyes bad, throat dry. He waited until late afternoon to try again to move forward, but was quickly overtaken by another snowstorm. So he crawled back to his tent. If he was an average person, he would have laid down and waited to die. But Maurice never waited for anything in his life. Maurice made it to Baghdad, spent the night, refueled, and was back in the air at sunrise the next morning. His navigation was by a combination of compass and landmarks. The daytime temperatures in the desert made flying at night seemingly a better option, but in 1933 he had no way of navigating in the dark. His destination was the island of Bahrain. His flight plan, such as it was, was to fly south by southeast. He expected his flight time that day to be about nine hours, and that would take him very close to the range limit of the Everest. He flew over the Tigris floodplain, and with the Tigris River on his left and the Euphrates River opening up on the right, he was in a situation where precision flying was critical. If Maurice had lost his way even for 20 minutes, it would be a life-ending mistake, either by flying into the ocean or into the Persian desert, where, aside from the inhospitable climate and terrain, was prohibited by the Persian government. Passing over Basra in southern Iraq, Maurice knew he was nearly halfway to Bahrain. He'd flown for hours and hours, just 12 miles off the coast and out of Persian airspace. The heat was intense and felt like flying into a furnace. His face and exposed skin were already bronzed and weathered from the sun and wind. But now small cracks were opening up on his face. These open wounds were painful as the salt air from the Persian Gulf hit these open sores. His eyes were seared by the sun, which sent waves of pain through his head and down his back. The sea below was completely still and a dull metallic blue. The far-off shoreline played tricks on him as fantastical mirages appeared and disappeared, never revealing themselves to be real or illusions. After eight and a half hours of flying, a faint shadow came into focus and he landed in Bahrain's newly built and sun-baked airstrip. Maurice told the mechanics at the airfield to refuel his plane and that he'd be taking off the next morning at dawn. He found a room to rent and fell into bed, burned, damaged, and with a splitting headache, but not beaten. Up at first light and at the airfield, Maurice found his plane in the same spot he'd left it the night before, and he quickly learned that the fuel tanks were empty. He was told by the mechanic that he'd been refused fuel by order of the British consul. In those days, it was popular to say that the sun never set on the British Empire, and Maurice was finding that the power of the British government was, in fact, far-reaching. Maurice was furious. He was convinced, and I think rightly so, that the authorities were overreaching. His plane was airworthy, and his pilot's license was valid, and he had been officially told that the necessary permits for his flight would be available. He'd committed no crime, broken no law, and when one of the permits was rescinded, he had a great personal risk alter his flight plan. What explanation could they have for not allowing him to refuel and fly on? What solution were they offering? Were they expecting his plane to remain in Bahrain forever? 
Maurice called the British consulate and was told that he was forbidden to continue because he didn't have a permit to fly over Persian territory. Maurice told them that he'd not flown over Persian territory and had no intention of doing so. The consulate official asked what type of plane he was flying. This seemed strange given that they were telling him that he couldn't fly and that he was somehow not equipped, but they seemingly had no idea what type of plane he was actually flying. It all seems a bit conspiratorial at this point, but sometimes conspiracies are real. The official at the consulate asked what the range of the Everest was, and when Maurice told him it was about 750 miles, the official smiled and said, Exactly, Mr. Wilson. There is no airstrip within 750 miles of Bahrain that's not in Persian territory, and we know where you're heading. It's more and more obvious that the forces trying to keep Maurice from getting to Everest are determined to prevent him specifically from being the first person to summit. And what would it look like if he'd been successful as an inexperienced soloist while the previous four large government-funded expeditions had failed? There's no parades for second place, and no one was prepared to give Maurice a parade no matter what he accomplished. When Maurice asked the official what he thought he should do, the man said, I'd fly to Bushir, which is the nearest airport, land, and ask for a permit. Maurice knew that if he went to Bushir, which incidentally is in Persia, and landed without a permit, his plane would be impounded and he'd be arrested and jailed. Maurice then asked the official if he would at least write a document of permission for him to fill his fuel tanks, and the man immediately agreed. Maurice wrote to Enid Evans back in London and told her, They tried to do the dirty on me. With full tanks and permission to leave, the bureaucrat waved as Maurice taxied down the runway and took off for what the official believed was Bouchier. Maurice lifted off without incident and immediately turned the Everest east and headed for Bulakistan and the gateway to the Himalayas and Everest. While the official had been writing the permission letter for Maurice to get fuel, Maurice had found a large regional map on the wall of the consulate office and a marking for a newly built airstrip in Gwadar, a small town a few miles beyond the Persian territory. The wrinkle was that it was a little less than 800 miles from where he was taking off, and the Everest had a 750-mile range. This was going to be a close call. He'd have no margin for error in his flight path, and the winds and weather would have to be absolutely perfect, or Maurice would become another lost and forgotten aviator of the 1930s. For nine and a half hours, Maurice flew due east and then over the Qatar Peninsula and out of sight of land and over the glass-like waters of the Persian Gulf. Hour after burning hour, he flew through the searing heat of the Middle East when suddenly his plane engine began to cough and sputter before stopping completely. The Everest was cruising at about 2,000 feet, and Maurice quickly went into problem-solving mode. His mind went to the time his engine had failed back in England, but that was the time he was over the lush green countryside of Yorkshire. This time it was over the vast emptiness of the sea. The plane began to drop from the sky. He checked his fuel gauges and engine switches and began his drill for restarting the stalled plane. He was already at 1,500 feet and falling fast. He pointed the nose further down, and the wind was blowing through the struts, and for a second, he appreciated the wind in his face rather than the beating sun. He pulled the plane out of its dive, and the engine gave one more cough before going silent. 
Maurice thought only a miracle could save him now. The plane was at 1,000 feet and seemingly would glide downward into the ocean. He began to say a prayer, and with what he knew would be his last attempt to start the engine and survive, he pointed the nose of the plane down. The water was getting closer, and the air wasn't as thin. His sun-cracked skin felt like a thousand needles were being pushed into his face as the salt air slammed into the raw and open cracks of his face. Through his dirty goggles, he could see detail on the surface of the water. At 150 feet, he pulled hard on the stick and tried one last time to start the engine. It sputtered, coughed, and faltered one last time, and then suddenly came to life. Maurice pulled back hard, trying to raise the nose of the plane, and as he skimmed low over the water, he began to climb again. He said later, I prayed, and my prayer was answered. But was his prayer answered? He could have just as easily and accurately said, I remembered my starting drill, and it worked. No matter what had saved him that day over the Persian Gulf, there's no question that faith was involved. Faith in God, or faith in his own rugged determination to succeed. Either way, he was alive and moving forward. But his progress was taking a toll. After seven hours in the air and suffering from dehydration, he began to suffer debilitating leg cramps. Maurice was a big guy, and crushed into the small cockpit, he had no room to stretch his legs without his feet putting pressure on the rudder and swinging the plane off course. The pain was agonizing and exhausting, but eventually eased off. Soon, he would have welcomed the pain, if for nothing else, to help keep him awake. Several times he closed his eyes and nodded off, and the plane wandered off course, and once he awoke to find himself nose down, speeding toward the ocean, he managed to pull the plane out of a dive only 200 feet from the water's surface. It was getting dark, and he knew that if he didn't reach his destination soon, he would run out of fuel, and his landing would not be a gentle slide into the hedgerows of Bradford. This would be a violent, life-ending disaster. After nine hours and several near misses, he spotted the airstrip of Guadar. Not sure it wasn't a mirage, Maurice had no choice but to once again have faith that this was indeed the airstrip. As he landed, the plane coughed and died as it ran out of fuel. He coasted to a stop just as darkness fell. It had taken two weeks, but Maurice was now in India. If this is all sounding like a Bruce Willis action film, that no matter what gets thrown at him, he survives and gains strength, then I think we're on the same page here. The next morning, Maurice was up early and flying towards Purnia. Making several stops for fuel along the way, he was twice more denied fuel by government orders. After being denied at one airport, he bribed the local hotel keeper to tell him where the airport's fuel was stored, and late one night he helped himself. Maintaining his integrity, Maurice had left the appropriate amount of money for the fuel under a rock next to the door of the fuel office. At this point, was there... Anyone or anything that could stop him? Landing in Labalu, Maurice once again found a hungry press corps. It was mid-June, and after making the flight from England to India, the press and the public began to take Maurice seriously again. He'd done what most thought impossible— and in the minds of the press and the public, if he made it this far, it seemed improbable but possible that he might succeed. 
It's interesting that such a high-profile history-making story at the time became a historical obscurity and seemingly not really one worth preserving or exploiting. The UK's Daily Express and the English-language Indian newspaper The Statesman did interviews and wrote lengthy articles about Maurice's adventure and dispatched them back to the UK where the public eagerly waited for each story. During an interview with the Daily Express, Maurice revealed more details of his plans and in true Maurice Wilson form, fanned the flames of controversy by taking a swipe at the mountaineering establishment. Maurice was quoted as saying, I will begin my climb of Everest after landing on the mountain 14,000 feet up with enough rice and dates in my rucksack to last 50 days. One fit and trained man can succeed where a large group have failed. For 10 months I have trained, testing foods and special types of fasts until I have found the best procedure to take one meal a day. This will enable me to breathe deep down into my stomach, taking in vastly increased supplies of oxygen. The reporter added, It seems that his 10 months of training have given him the utmost confidence, and he considers his optimism fully justified. Maurice even showed off his custom-made cold-weather clothing. This is one area that Maurice did have experience. He had been in the textile and clothing business his entire life. His outer suit was made of warm, light material lined with silk to resist sun, wind, and water, and under that he wore several wool cardigans. Truthfully, it seems like he was more prepared to go on a picnic on a foggy day than trek through sub-zero temperatures and hundred-mile-an-hour winds. He was especially proud of his custom-made boots that were made with insulated cork that ran from heel to toe. Now, I'm not a mountaineer, and I don't have a lot of experience in high remote mountains, but the people I know who do that kind of climbing, and from the stories I've read and the pictures I've seen, the modern high-altitude full-body suits climbers wear today seem a little more comfortable and a lot more functional. There. I just wasted an entire paragraph trying to say that Maurice's 1933 clothing and boots were ridiculously uncomfortable and ridiculously inadequate for the terrain he was entering. Sometimes I get a bit wordy. Additionally, though, none of the articles mentioned the single most important enabler Maurice had, which was his faith. Within a few days, in a single paragraph printed in The Statesman, Maurice had admitted that the one problem that he had not properly considered was receiving permission to fly into Nepal. It hadn't occurred to him that this would have been much of a barrier, but at this point he had been unable to secure the required permission. He quickly found his way around the problem of flying through Persia, but permission to fly into Nepal was becoming increasingly difficult. He was in Lalbalu, the city that had launched the first planes to fly over Everest. They'd left from the same airport where the Everest was now sitting. Maurice was confident, and he was resourceful. He believed it was only a matter of time before he was able to obtain the permission or had devised a workaround solution, as he'd been able to do in the past. Within a day of landing in La Blue, Maurice got a visit from the local police chief. Unlike the other officials Maurice had met along the way, he and the chief struck up an immediate friendship. Maurice knew that he would need help, and... Turning on the social charms couldn't hurt. Though friendly and accommodating, the chief delivered an official notice that Maurice was to fly the Everest directly to Purnia and land in a compound owned by the Maharaja Dibanga, 
and from that point he would be restrained from flying. Knowing that the Maharaja's airstrip was small and landing his modified plane with all his gear would be tricky, he unloaded his plane and stored all his personal items in Labalu. He was told his plane would be kept under constant surveillance and to throw more salt into his wounds, he was told he'd have to pay for the guard who would be watching his plane. The police chief told Maurice that he was sorry, but the authorities intended to make sure that Maurice never flew into Nepal without the proper permit. It seems Maurice's reputation for cleverness and resourcefulness had reached Labalu before he did. Over the next several weeks, Maurice pleaded with both the British and Nepalese authorities for the permits. He was eventually told to go to Raxel, a town on the border of India and Nepal, and plead his case with the border officials. He made the 200-mile trip and pleaded his case. When he arrived, a monsoon had engulfed the region and the weather window for climbing Everest was closing, and he was told no permit was forthcoming. Maurice made several phone calls to Kathmandu seeking a permit and was finally told by a Nepalese official, No, you can't fly over Nepal, and if you telephone 20 times a day for the next 10 years, the answer will still be no. Disappointed but not beaten, Maurice never once thought of turning back and going home. He couldn't. It wasn't about shame or failure. In his mind, he was answering a divine call, and he had a theory to prove. And to prove it, he had to climb Everest, and he had to climb it alone. The more obstacles that were put in front of him, the more determined he became. It was time for a change of plans. The weather window was now closed for attempting Everest this season, so now the goal was to go to Everest on a reconnaissance mission to further his knowledge of the terrain and the routes. Now in the laid-back city of Purnia, he was enjoying the lifestyle and assimilating into the culture. Maurice had a plan, but knowing that authorities were watching him at all times, his patience was now his most important virtue. Between living expenses and having to pay the guards to watch his plane, Maurice was out of money. Living entirely on rice, oats, and bananas, he knew that something had to be done. The only asset he had left was the Everest. It was a great plane and had become a great friend. It had carried him a third of the way around the world. But the Everest had to go. He found a buyer in Luckenau and received permission to fly there to sell the plane. But when he got to the airport, he found the Everest was in terrible shape. The monsoons had beaten up the plane pretty badly, and as he tried to start the engine, nothing happened. The Everest was dead. With no money to have the plane fixed, he rummaged around through his papers and found an engine handling booklet. Following the instructions to the letter, he inspected and repaired the engine in five hours, and according to Maurice, the Everest was giving better revs than it had when it was delivered by its builders. He then found another booklet on the plane's rigging, and in a couple days he had essentially rebuilt the Everest. The Everest at this point had become somewhat famous in the aviation world and infamous to government officials. He had several offers for the plane, but accepted a 500-pound offer from a man in Lucknow. After selling the plane and with some money in his pocket, Maurice immediately traveled to Darjeeling. Darjeeling was the launching-off place for all Everest expeditions in the day. 
The mountaineering industry at the time was based in Darjeeling, including the outfitters and Sherpas that were needed by mountaineers attempting to climb Himalayan peaks. Darjeeling was to mountaineering in the 30s what Silicon Valley is to tech in the 2000s. Well known to authorities and still being watched, Maurice took things slow. But his plan was now clear. He'd find a couple of discreet Sherpas that would help him carry his gear and Together they would walk the 300 miles from Darjeeling to the base of Everest, and then he'd begin his climb. In our next episode, Maurice sets out for a 300-mile stroll and a hike up the world's tallest mountain. But this will be no walk in the park. Thank you for listening, and if you're enjoying these stories, please share the podcast with your friends and on your social media pages, and leave a review on whatever podcast platform you use. We'll see you at base camp. Lying on his deathbed watching the picture show The product of the night The bottle and some smoke A boomer's tricks and a woman's See?